Thank you and good morning everyone. Thank you for the invite and for all being here. So today I want to think uh, with you uh, on the agency of the architectural project informing and communicating planetary concerns at a moment when Earth systems are in crisis. The talk will follow an outline similar to that of the recently published Geo Stories. I'll start with a compact, uh, brief, but dense introduction to some of the conceptual questions of the research, and then I'll follow with three projects, one from each section of the book, Terrarium, Aquarium, and Planetarium. So the conference proposes that magical thinking, a belief that thoughts and action can influence the world, um, is the provocation that was put on the table. And so the, the book is somehow a response to making visible geographic concerns through um, drawing and narrative in an attempt to influence the world back again, maybe in a form that might be best referred to as a certain magical realism. It has at its core an attempt to reconnect critique and praxis and reconcile the weight of violent environmental histories with visions of a future that might be still worth imagining and living. Rather than resolution, the projects each maintains this tension. They're neither documentary, but neither are they entirely fictional. Stories matter for the earth. The conditions of the current environmental crisis have relied on narratives of industrial modernity, about the world as resource, about nature as external, about progress as an escape from nature's determinations and limits, and about technology as a quasi-autonomous prime mover. Spatial representation is complicit in the perpetuation of such stories and myth, such as the image from Total's promotional campaign with this binary and rigid symmetry between a Manhattan-like metropolis on one side and a polar prospection landform, something that oscillates between a status of being an other wilderness and possibly a, a future extractive hinterland. Such organization of carbon urbanism rests on technological systems that extract resources from geographies beyond the island's jurisdictions, a city, any city be it, all while divesting the center from the environmental costs of urbanization by deferring to political entities and temporalities that do not have a voice in such carbon accounting. Economists commonly use, use the term externalities to refer to such costs, which are unaccounted for in entrepreneurial outlays and shifted to and ultimately borne by third parties or by the community as a whole. Stories of the earth have long rested on this abstraction of geographic externalities, of refineries, pipelines, carbon dioxide pollution, public health, and the degradation of shared commons outside the purview of representation to make possible the transformation of the earth into the single value of an economic resource, a property. For if geography does not exist or matter, then energy corporations cannot be held accountable and pay the reparations for the social and environmental transformation brought about by their carbon extraction operations. In this worldview, representation switches off political vigilance on how to organize the world and its resources. Environmentalists have brought to our attention, however, that there's no externalities, no outside in which the unwanted consequences of our actions can disappear from view. Paradoxically, however, while the threats are serious, we remain little mobilized, in part maybe because of the poverty of the environmental imagination. The environmental crisis might not be only a calamity of the physical environment, but also a predicament of the cultural environment, of the systems of representation through which society relates to complex environmental issues in their vast scales of time and space. 
At a moment when we can no longer imagine the world without externalities, we might need to tell other stories in which externalities are integral rather than incidental to narratives of the earth. When Dr. Victor Frankenstein met his creation on a glacier in the Alps, the French philosopher Bruno Latour reminds us, the monster claimed that it was not born a monster at all, but that it became destructive only after being left alone, abandoned in the laboratory by his horrified creator the moment he twitched to life. So you'll hear more this afternoon on the continued relevance of Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, which was published in 1818. But for now, let me point to two points in which the story of Frankenstein's creator, creator could inform how we imagine technological production. I propose one that we should look at Frankenstein. We should begin by making visible the unevenness between on one side the promises of technology and on the other side the actual deployment and distribution of geographic externalities. And two, that we should stay with modern Frankenstein, not abandon them, but to speculate on words in which Staying with the trouble, to quote Donna Haraway, is the only ethical option for technological and environmental matters, to stay with landfills, with mine pits, with oil rigs, as we imagine better futures. So how can we convert into image and narrative the geographic externalities and technological Frankensteins? And how do we do that in a way that produces accounts that are more fantastic than that of the extractive industrialism, so as to communicate that which scientific rationalization alone with its various forms of evidence, the exponential curves, the diagrams, flows, are failing to communicate. Perhaps speculative narrative and its persistent engagement with technological questions in relation to the planet, including those created by broadening risk scenarios, can open up our stories to relentless diversity and urgent troubles. Beyond technofixes, such as F, as Donna Haraway's term for science fiction, speculative fabulations, string figures, speculative feminism, science fact, cultivates thinking about what current technologies, theories, or habits can't yet solve. So beyond documentary descriptions, a speculative narrative sensibility might give meaning to what otherwise would be an illustration of the utterly unbearable scale and atrocity of events. Rachel Carson, whose book Silent Spring was credited with advancing the global movement, environmental movement, resorted to a narrative form to give shape to toxicity. A fable for tomorrow, the opening chapter, introduces a town in the heart of America that awakens to a birdless, budless spring. This town does not actually exist, Carson concludes, but it might easily have a thousand counterparts in America or elsewhere in the world, for, and I quote, a grim specter has crept upon us almost unnoticed and this imagined tragedy may easily become a stark reality we all shall know. So the purpose of such fabulations is not to fix the future, but to raise questions on present relations and past ones between humans and the world they inhabit. At its best, storytelling helps us keep ethically entangled with the world by engaging with such world-making effects, including those of the devalued, the neglected, and the unloved. The iconic Apollo photograph staged a world picture that was global and ecological, a standalone planet outside of us. However, we do not live on a blue marble, and as far as that famous image of the planet symbolizes an objective, holistic, impersonal Earth made visible by technological advancement. In a 2005 article entitled, Imagine what, that what the warming world needs now is art, sweet art, 
the writer and climate activist Bill McKibben notes that the famous picture of the Earth from outer space that Apollo beamed back in the late 1960s, already that's not the world we inhabit. Its poles are melting, its oceans rising. We can register what is happening with satellites and scientific instruments, but can we register it in our imaginations, the most sensitive of all devices? McKibben appeals to the Apollo image as a, that of a ruined monument for environmentalism that speaks in principle to a vital moment when our imaginations were able to register the, the crisis of the planet, and thus presumably to animate popular desires to mitigate that crisis. So technical indices of environmental dynamics alone are inadequate for McKibben, for they fail to generate what he calls cultural meaning or a dramatic plot that would be effectively compelling for the general public. So if extractive capital is an act of geographical violence that abstracts space for exchange value, then the geographical imagination, which engages geography and history as aesthetic practices, might be a response to such servitude. For design earth, geographic aesthetic practice, and also education, because we are also um, professors, is the instrument for nurturing, or that kind of to keep up yesterday's conversation, training a planetary ethical impulse that solicits a situated imagination. The pretext of these drawings is in part pedagogical. They are intended to make the public a new picture of the earth, a picture that is visible, critical, and speculative. So almost think of the world in which the image of ecology that circulates is more akin to that of Yves Klein's uh, Globe Terrestre Bleu, which was produced in 1957. Um, uh, four years before uh, Gagarin actually commented on the earth as an intense deep blue. So allow the artist to contribute to shaping a new uh, image of the earth. Architecture has historically inflected how humans understand and see the cosmos. The Pantheon, for instance, incorporates references to celestial globes, the 20-day, 28-day cycle of the moon, and the 16 directional divisions of the sky, sunlight that shines as a disk through the oculus into the interior, gods that are identified with meteorological and astronomical phenomena, and a blazing, fiery sky when, when angered. So Blue Marble Circus revisits the Pantheon, and that's the name of the project, to render visible the spherical architecture of the cosmos that is inscribed within it. It's otherwise invisible. So the Ecorche drawing, which became a kind of a material uh, model reality, peels off ribs to reveal and stage a blue marble in an age of climate emergency. Climate change, Bruno Latour argues, calls for another ecological belief system represented in the figure of Gaia entering the theater of the world. Gaia embodies the worlds of science with its technological processes of modeling and also pre-modern forms of, tra of transcendence that incorporate mythological connotations. The reason for which this is needed at this very moment, Latour repeatedly states, is that Gaia approaches, picking up on Isabel Stenger's The Intrusion of Gaia. The Earth, adds Latour, has become once again an agent of our common geo-story. He continues, the problem becomes for all of us in philosophy, science, or literature, how do we tell such a story? For Design Earth, architecture seeks to contain a planet that exceeds all attempts to contain it. It's a search for an alternative to the figure of the standalone blue marble and of the globe that rests on the titan's shoulders. We draw on the geographic imagination to design with externalities, to make legible the geographies of technological system, visualize how they change the earth, and foreground them as elements of design. 
Geography is a scalar practice that extends this inquiry of territory into the geological and into the extraorbital cosmos. For example, and in an age of extensive anthropogenic climate transformation, extraplanetary geographies have become a matter of crucial legal and political importance, soliciting the expansion of such imagination and the world we are assembling to the geostationary orbit where most of um, the satellites uh, are orbiting around the Earth. Geography is also a form of synthetic aesthetic knowledge, and in particular, the geographic drawing is our privileged mode of representation. Alexander von Humboldt's influential treatise, The Cosmos, had achieved this unitary worldview by drawing together a physical geography of the Earth and that of outer space. The section drawing, in particular, with its legacy in an aquarium view section in natural history drawing, shows domains both above and below the surface of the water or the ground. And such portrait of nature, as um, von Humboldt would refer to it, presents a totality of the scales and sciences of the Earth in an assemblage of astronomy, geography, and geology. Although Humboldt's avowed purpose was that of a scientific traveler, his drawings assembled forms of knowledge which, beyond the accumulation of information, engaged the aesthetic experience of the reader or viewer. And it is that what geostories attempts to do is to address questions of representation, both political and aesthetic, of what world wants, one wants to assemble, which values, and with what entities she wants to live. So these are some of the broad strokes from the introduction, that speculative architectural fiction becomes the method to intervene representationally, to plot and give figurative shape to environmental threats, all while keeping the future open to possibilities of intervention. The book is organized into three sections, terrarium, aquarium, and planetarium, each of which revisits, revisits such devices of wonder to assemble publics around representations of the Earth. From the series of 14 architectural projects, I'll present three of these geostories, one from each section, to give you a sense of how speculative geographic fiction could respond to resource extraction from geological depth, the deep sea, and outer space. Terrarium. Frustrated by the death of his plants in polluted East London, surgeon and amateur botanist Nathaniel Ward devised a case of glass and metal that was shown in the Great Exhibition in 1851. Ward's display at the Crystal Palace set off the craze for the small glass structure, later termed terrarium, as part of a Victorian popularization of botany, geology, and other sciences of the earth. If Ward's aim was to encase a small parcel of purified air, what might a terrarium look like if it accounted for and represented the environmental conditions of smoke, waste, and pollution that he was trying to keep at bay. To read fossil earth, we must become conscious of geological dimension and of the layers of material entombed in the earth crust. We must see the earth in a section cut that describes the world hidden into the layers of the earth, the spaces of fossil fuels and those of landfills. And that image of the total comes back again, but more in context, more in geography. So over the past 200 years, and in particular after World War II, the fossil fuel industry, first coal, then oil, and natural gas, has produced spectacular economic growth in the form of an abundant and cheap energy machine. Cheap in as far as the industry has divested itself of the environmental transformations brought about by the global expansion of the extractive frontier. Oil has since shed its developmental promises. And what you're looking at is a geographic situation of the kind of city limits of Paris on the upper end um, 
and the mirrored site presents Hassi Masoud, an oil and gas extraction site in the Algerian Sahara that supplies most of the natural gas that goes to Europe and begins to situate the dimensions and the urban forms that corresponds to each uh, part of the planet. So after oil was uh, commissioned for the Kuwait Pavilion at the 2016 Venice Biennale, the project proposes three speculative tales that explore the geography of a major oil producing region, the Persian Gulf, in the decades after oil. Each project stages and extrapolates critical issues of today's oil landscapes. At sites of extraction, the first one is Das Island, a transit logistics through the Strait of Hormuz, as well as sites of oil spill, the third project, Bubian Island. So Das Island lies at 160 kilometers off the coast of Abu Dhabi. Since the first oil prospection expedition in the United Arab Emirates in 1953, Das Island has developed into a major oil and gas industrial facility where Abu Dhabi processes, stores, and exports crude pumped at its offshore fields. Such exports are a mainstay of the economy and a main driver of the urbanization of Abu Dhabi and its sister emirates, such as Dubai, with many of the country's iconic buildings built from oil wealth. Yet, the relations between the wealth of the surface and the impoverishment of the underground are not presented in the same frame. Thus, crude makes visible such displacement of value in oil urbanism by collapsing the two sites. So the drawing that you're seeing is both a timeline and a geologic section, where UAE's architectural landmarks are, index are indexed in relation to the geological depth and times of extraction of depleted oil reservoirs. So the deeper you dig, the higher the buildings, the more recent the technologies. And the drawing brings into visibility at the same time that verticality of extraction, but also the volumes and displaced matter of the state's territory. The after of after oil. So thus, island is not a reference to the period following only the depletion of non-renewable resources, but it's also that. Uh, to be after indicates an object indicates the object of a stated or implied desire, that of the race of extractive economy to the last drop of oil on the ground, to dig deeper and build higher. The project recovers the excavated volumes of soil and stone, the insides of the earth that spilled out during the oil extraction operation to build a landform monument to the age of oil. The Strait of Hormuz is a critical oil transit choke point with 20% of oil traded worldwide moving by tanker through its 30 mile wide passage. The strait was never actually shut down in spite of persistent anxieties of its possible obstruction around frictions, notably the long running dispute between the UAE and Iran over the three islands and some more recent tanker attacks. And after oil, the revenues of oil future, which is the legal contract name for the trade of oil between buyers and sellers, perpetuates the geopolitical rivalries between countries on both sides of the Gulf in the form of a territorial board game, kind of a hybrid of risk, a strategy board game of diplomacy, conflict and conquest, and monopoly of buying and trading properties in new cities. So the Grand Chessboard repurposes the strait into a real estate geopolitical game of speculative urbanism between the traditional adversaries, those who call it the Persian Gulf in black and those who call it the Arabian Gulf in white, and in the process absorbs the three territorially contested islands among the many pieces of speculative urban projects. Each chess piece is an iconic project from the history of speculative urbanism. You can recognize Plan Voisin, Delirious New York, the Metabolis, etc. And in the process, the geo story speaks to the meaning of speculative 
when associated to urbanism encounters a reading of speculative urbanism, kind of the coupling of the term as a domain where real estate capital flows and processes of urban planning and governance in cities of the global south is the predominant definition. The end of the Persian Gulf in 1991 was accompanied by what is referred to as a geotrauma, uh, the world's largest oil spill drastically affecting Kuwait's coastal environment. Beyond the intensity of this one-point event, the oil industry, with its business-as-usual increasing rates of carbon emission, puts the world through a slower form of violence, as Rob Nixon refers to it, that of anthropogenic climate change. Bubian Island is one such geography of climate change, a flat and low landscape that is vulnerable to sea level rise. There once was an island gives form to such invisible threats. A series of vertical nabkhas, vertical elements, are inserted into the highest 16 elevation mounds of the island to stabilize its shrinking shoreline into an archipelago of islands. The project holds all major development works currently in plan to transform the area into a major tourist resort and seaport, um, including various seawalls along the shores. So the island continues to be uninhabited by humans. It hosts sea turtles, antelopes, and other life forms that withstand the temperature and acidity associated with anthropogenic climate change. So after oil is not a mere switch in energy producers towards some green panacea, what it requires is a reform of the geographic imagination. It gives form to a carbon Frankenstein to rescue all future green energy sources from idealism and subsequent neglect. Aquarium. Among the many early handbooks on aquarium care is Ocean Gardens, which admonishes readers. To appreciate nature, the mind requires a special education, without which the eye and the ear perceive but little of the miracles passing before them. It adds, the wonders of the ocean floor do not reveal themselves to vulgar eyes. Born out of the desire to represent the inaccessible, expansive, and mysterious sea, the aquarium gave a new aesthetic to the idea of evidence, marrying speculation and fantasy with scientific and technological knowledge production to create a submarine chamber of wonders. The call to educate the eye is timely to remember at the moment when humans are altering the ocean environments. Their oceans are the biggest resource for life on Earth and also the biggest dumping ground. They're the largest anthropogenic carbon sink as defining and warming up as oceans absorb most excess heat energy generated over the last 50 years. We are, of course, more familiar with the threat of such volumetric transformations when it impacts sea level rides and the shorelines of major urban centers by the coast. So the ocean is a classic example of global commons and for long protected from exploitation by the law of the sea as a common heritage of humanity. However, these bodies of law do little to nothing to protect deep volumes of ocean from future industrial activity. Today, countries and international corporations are racing to claim deep sea rare earth mineral resources for the production of batteries and alloys. One such site is the Clarion-Clipperton zone in the Pacific Ocean, an area approximately the size of Europe uh, that has the world's largest deposits of deep seabed rare earth minerals. Since 2001, 12 exploration licenses for minerals have been granted on the CCZ deep seabed. 
that's all the rigged kind of territorial lines that you see. Paradoxically, and in dotted squares, nine areas of APEI, areas of particular environmental interest, are designated to protect biodiversity, ecosystem functions, and sustainability of resources. So the ridge runs in the middle, and this is where most of the rare earth minerals are, and this is where it gets hillier on the sides, more difficult to prospect. So imagine kind of a cube of preservation in the middle of the ocean. I'm not sure how that's possible, but that's the idea. So the Pacific Aquarium project begins with this conceptual diagram, which collapses these two zones. Rather than neatly separating the interests of mineral exploration, economy, from those of environmental protection, ecology, the project consolidates the nine proposed areas and overlays them onto the concession. So the diagram to the right. Uh, the installation, which was commissioned for the Oslo Triennale, is a grid with nine modules, each of which embodies the contradictory concerns of ecology and economy within the same territory. So you're kind of reading the uh, little prince once the snake has actually swallowed the elephant together rather than uh, juxtaposed. It's an uneasy cohabitation maybe, but necessary as an intellectual exercise. So the subsequent drawings depict three-dimensional cross-sections of the ocean. I'll only share a few. With support from the ISA, um, a 21st century gold rush is set to begin on the ocean floor, the likely consequences of which we are only beginning to fathom with, as we're not even fully mapped uh, the deep seabed. But the consequences may include changes to the geochemistry of the sediment, as well as light and noise pollution from the machinery. The same institution has also mandated a detailed procedure in order to conserve the flora and fauna of the mining area to facilitate an accelerated recovery of this ecosystem post-extraction. Each mining entity will be required to extract substrate samples along a geographically indexed system of transects on a 500-meter grid across its claim. Suspended by cables from a grid of surficial floats, a terraforming infrastructure relocates linear transects of substrate samples to incubate a benthic ecosystem that will be grafted onto the depleted seabed once mining is completed. Similar to its Babylonian namesake, the Hanging Gardens of the Pacific is the subject of controversies as to whether it's an actual construction or a poetic exercise. The sharply toothed, comb-like suction machine churn and rip the ocean surface into sediment slurry, which if not contained, would distribute widely through deep ocean currents. A catchment dome caps mining activities on the ocean floor to contain a localized sediment plume. Polluted water is separated from surrounding water, transported into a series of inverted water tower for treatment, and gradually released back into the ocean after purification. Below the water tower flips that Manhattanism on its head. It displaces Buckminster Fuller's infamous dome over Manhattan and reorganizes the conceptual diagram between architecture, urbanism, and environment. Rather than architecture protecting the air of the city from the world, here both architecture and urbanism, the dome and the inverted series of tower, are put to do work for the planet. The International Seabed Authority mandates the conservation of the flora in the Clarion-Clipperton zone. Deep sea mining, however, produces plumes that smother near-bottom species and forces them away from their habitats. The cyborg fish colony is a school of worker fish, a hybrid of machine and organism not dissimilar to the many killing machines and robo-fishers already ruling the oceans. 
It collects plumes into a massive spherical sponge-like nest where toxic particles are regenerated into a kind of an Anthropocene caviar-like delicacy. It's this Janus-faced model of ecology that is comic in a way, but also lethal. Wherever coral reefs, sea turtles, and fish die off, jellyfish bloom, more than just symptoms of weakness, more like an angel of death. Medusa maze is a jellyfish husbandry scheme for an emerging cosmetic industry. It's also an arena that pits the gelatinous beasts against planktons and sea turtles in a luminescent aquarium. The Medusa maze is a, is, is collects collagen from jellyfish in response to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization's a requirement to curb the widespread of jellyfish and develop what it calls useful formulations. The industry resolves ecological nuisance in the form of useful products in a spectacular display. The challenge of governing the ocean is that it lacks formal representation, both political and aesthetic, through which to think the new environments of climate change. Here, the Parliament of Refugees contains within the same artificial envelope different things and species such as sea turtles, scallops, bleached corals, drowning wetlands, hammered head sharks, algae, homo sapiens. The parliament is organized around the hollow pillar that connects it to the center of the earth through a submerged volcano. So the aquarium reckons with the cognitive and affective dissonance between what feels like individual concerns and agencies and a context of enormous collective impact. It also presents a few significant attributes. The aquarium is a three-dimensional territory that materializes volume, a vertical cross-section of an ocean space that is mostly otherwise represented in diagrams and indicators of rising sea levels, more of a surface concern. The aquarium is also a populated space. Uh, it counters images of the sea that presented as a territory of emptiness, such as the Lewis Carroll's evacuated ocean chart. The aquarium is now Rather than accelerated and exponential aesthetics of satellites and flyover images, uh, what we refer to as these artifacts parlant, almost a, a kind of a bag on, on l'architecture la, parlante, they respond to the slow violence in what one might perceive as a form of uh, slow media that slows down thoughts and grounds it in the immediacy of the present. The aquarium is also there. It's both a model of the world that capitalizes on its distance from the real through its transparent yet clearly defined boundary conditions. With monsters, storms, and jellyfish on stage, the aquarium is the setting in which the non-speaking and non-human entities operate as devices of estrangement. And it is such aquarium's uncanny ability to draw on multiple, even competing visual and textual logic that is central to its work. It's a device that disturbs, startles, or delights us into new ways of thinking and feeling the scales of the ocean. It vividly holds in tension the panorama and the detail. It stages a slice of the ocean, nesting a range of scales from the micro to the macro, without ever fit fitting neatly towards this unframable whole. Planetarium. So extraplanetary geographies have become a matter of crucial legal and political importance with a private space initiative speculating in off-sourced extractive industries for water, platinum group, metals, and other resource riches. 
Commercial actors are increasingly invested in geological surveys and exploratory missions to map and visit astronomical rocks and return samples to Earth. Planetary Resources, for example, aims to send swarms of low-cost robotic spacecraft to extract resources from near-Earth asteroids, as this artist's concept shows. In February 2018, Elon Musk's Tesla Roadster and its dummy driver Starman made headlines when the car blasted off to uh, blasting David Bowie's space oddity from its speakers. The symbolism of a dashboard screen displaying don't panic resonates with the billionaire entrepreneur's worries about the next extinction and his proper thoughts that humans need to get off Earth and become interplanetary. With plans for an ecological colonization of Mars uh, and subsequent planet. Think of the Martian that Musk thinks is actually worth seeing. So in this emerging new space age, outer space is no longer the common heritage of mankind as declared by the UN Outer Space T Treaty in 1967 and becomes an extension of, or further an extension of private corporations' politics on Earth. It calls into question the potential of how do we make sense of such uh, cosmic imaginary. So Cosmorama is, uh, was commissioned for the U.S. Pavilion, Dimensions of Citizenship, at the 2018 Venice Biennale. It charts the territories of outer space in three stories that speculate on the expansion of empire and private industry interests into the province of all mankind, and the way these speculative efforts impact life on Earth today. So the three geographic fictions are Mining the Sky, Planetary Arc, and Pacific Cemetery. They're organized vertically here, so from left to right. So the first one, mining the sky. Aside from daunting logistic, the largest earthbound obstacle to space mining is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which then mindful of Cold War animosity had decreed that no celestial body is subject to, and I quote, national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means. Sounds like clear language. Such universal legal geography has been recently, however, violated by national commercial space legislation, including this US Space Act of 2015. It's an acronym, appropriate, for Spurring Private Aerospace and Competitiveness and Entrepreneurship Act. Not sure which came first, the acronym or that long thing, which is impossible to remember, but space is, isn't it? And it allows US citizens to engage in the commercial exploration and exploitation of space resources. So Mining the Sky speculates on the architecture of this 2015 US Space Act. It makes visible the intertwined and conflicting interests of the Oval Office, the United Nations, space industry, uh, scientific research, and private investors. The captured asteroids are despun and towed to a mining depot at the Earth moon. L1 Lagrange point, a position where the combined gravitational pull from the two celestial objects constitute a stable equilibrium point. Robotic arms process the asteroid. They either hollow out the space resources, collecting the trail of debris in the fabricated cave, or they mine the surface to carve out the face of the gods of the new space age. So Cosmic Rushmore makes visible the exploitation of raw materials from these asteroids into these large-scale sculptures of the gods of private interests. The mission partnership between NASA and the US Air Force maintains security of rare earth storage at this Lagrange point, which require fortification. 
Interestingly enough, the history of axonometric drawing is also right to the, tied to the history of uh, fortification typologies. It produces the first artificial constellation visible to human eye from Earth. Planetary Arc is a collection of living animals, both those that were launched into space on scientific missions to test the survivability of spaceflight for the human body. These are the ones lined up uh, to embark, as well as a wide variety of other species currently threatened by the sixth mass extinction in Earth history. So the Empire State Arc makes visible the animals that march into the Empire State Building. Now that climate change and uncertain futures define a new normal on Earth, animal species are sent out, each in its cubicle, on an arc to the International Space Station, all aboard the Architecton. Once funding for the most expensive structure is discontinued in 2024, the International Space Station is repurposed into a microcosm of scientific experimentations on forms of life, what it means to be human, and the making of worlds. It's also a place of last refuge where some scientists whose research funding on climate change has been discontinued can tend to creatures with remarkable care. A few thousand years later, the offspring of these fellow travelers embark on an earthbound journey. At Point Nemo in the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific Cemetery is a vortex spiral island where decommissioned satellites and other space debris are brought back from orbit and recycled. Over the next decades, thousands of satellites will be launched into space and eventually decommissioned after 15 years of operation. Dubbed the oceanic point of inaccessibility at more than 1,400 nautical miles from the nearest land, Point Nemo is already the cemetery of deorbited spacecraft, including the Soviet-era Mir space station, the Jules Verne ATV, and other European Space Agency cargo ships, and a SpaceX rocket. In 1947, the US secured an agreement with the United Nations in which, by designating the islands of Micronesia as the strategic trust territory, the US conducted nuclear testing in such sites between 1946 and 1962, all while the directive stated that the US should, and I quote, promote the economic advancement and self-sufficiency of the inhabitants, and to this end shall protect the inhabitants against the loss of their lands and resources. Such low-lying coastal countries are particularly vulnerable to sea level rise and the loss of physical territory also implies that they no longer meet the UN criteria for statehood. The first submerged Pacific Islands are declared the US strategic territory, which not unlike the Marshall Islands where the US uh, has previously intervened, the new space uh, uh, strategic territory buries its space trash and promotes the said economic advancement and the rights to self-determination of such planetary refugees. So Point Nemo becomes the landfill of the space age, in which the vestiges of space objects are recycled into bits of sovereignty to house climate, climate refugees from the Pacific Island. In the installation, each suspended head is a Janus face of 3D model of an asteroid from the NASA Open website, and coupled with a related Greek god whose name it often carries. So the miniature of the has genealogies in both scientific and mythical representation. Cosmorama is primarily the site of spectacle. Similar to earlier image machines, the panorama and the diorama, the Cosmorama is a form of popular entertainment, a peep box through which the spectator views a set of scenes that put the cosmos on stage 
It materializes gods, magnifies minuscule creatures, pulls far away things and places them near. So Cosmorama hacks the spectacle myth machine to render sensible the uncanny underbelly of both the new space age and the event of the Anthropocene. In the context of histories of the environment, the myth is a particularly effective means for storytelling in times of trouble. Myths connect to and magnify the cultural and political worlds they engage. Like most stories, they come at truth through the imagination. They describe or explicate a here and a now that is difficult to tell and hear in other ways. Myths counter the stories of industrial capitalism with an even more fantastic narrative machine that tells truth to realism. They ascribe agency where it's hard to assign causality. The importance of such wonder-charged narrative should not be overlooked when conceiving planetary relationships anew. After all, environmentalism is foremost a protest on behalf of values, an engagement with the world beyond the tunnel vision of resourcism. And it's tempting to think that such attention to stories can make us care. Thank you.